Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at Menards. It, it's not every film that kind of leaps out to you as, you know, an all-timer, one for the ages. And sometimes, actually very often, we respond to art with enthusiasm and we, we overstate our passions or we're wrong or right. But regardless, I think my my lodestar or the, the what 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 assured me that my reaction was the right one for me at least was the the fact that the film was so consistent formally in terms of its content in terms of its ending the mm. fact that there would be no, nothing heroic about this ending there would be it would never be solved just like in real life really it would it would it would end with you know multiple credits fading in and fading out and this is after a very long movie and when i started to see it with audiences i think i went to see it like three or four times in the theaters um people were just almost laughing at those credits they were laughing because it was like as if this wasn't enough as if we didn't it was almost like the ending of like like the devil inside that says like for more information go to the I mean, like Zodiac kind of invented that in a weird way. <laughs> but instead of going to this website, it was sort of like, now you've been indoctrinated. You will always be obsessed with this film. You will be obsessed with this killer. Um, but I, I really felt it, it. The film stuck to its guns in a way that was I was I was amazed and shocked that he even got it made. As for where the worm turns and public opinion on it changes. I mean, that, that's really an excellent question. I know the film started appearing in best of lists for the decade mm. uh, around 2010. I remember mm. that. And beginning of 2011, people were saying, oh, yeah, Zodiac is definitely. And I think that the, the, the reason it was in those lists was more of a um, we admire it more than we, we <laughs> loved it. You know, like we admire how, how owned we were by this movie, how spanked we were by it. <laughs> Here's some movie that is uncompromising. Um, but I really do think, especially as Fincher's career has stretched out and he has um, he's had an incredible rate of, of artistic success, in my opinion. Oh. Um, I think what it did was it crystallized what he could do. I mean, before this film, you have Seven and Fight Club, which I think are the first two of his really excellent films. Yes. But nothing on the level of Zodiac. Um, I mean, really, the idea of, I mean, when we heard that he was making Zodiac, we were like, oh, another serial killer that's dark like Seven, you know, like, like, oh, wow, it'll be, I, and I remember seeing Seven and thinking that this was more my jam than Silence of the Lambs, but no one was prepared for something like Zodiac, which was so fact-based, so interested in analog technologies, so interested in the idea of pure, of losing one's own self and identity in an obsession with with the truth nowhere in sight, like that's a very difficult. Like that's not something that gets greenlit. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a twenty-four part investigation into David Fincher's two thousand and seven genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. 
adapted from Robert Graceman's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt. The film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Our introduction today was former long-running editor of Time Out New York, editor, critic, and writer for hire with bylines at the New York Times, Empire, and Sight and Sound, the Tosky to my Graysmith, Mr. Joshua Rothkopf. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening. It's a huge help for those fellow lovers of our brand of cinematic, obsessive deep dives. I also want to let you know that the links to our Patreon with a weekly rum and rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid are in the show description or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to answer if we cracked the last cipher are Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt, senior contributor at Film School Rejects Meg Shields, film critic on sabbatical with bylines at rogerebert.com and the Metaplex, Brandon Hodges, theatre director and podcaster Daniel Lamon, film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope, author of the upcoming book David Fincher Mind Games and the incredible Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks, Adam Naiman, filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Oceans 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, Brian Koppelman, writer and film critic at Film School Rejects, Anna Swanson, writer and book critic, Bill Ryan, and for the very first time, friend of the show, editor-at-large of RogerEbert.com, TV critic for Vulture, the incredible Matt Solazites. <laughs> and what is dating but a form of protection? <laughs> <laughs> this is the 11th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Gemini Part 1. In this sequence, after four months of correspondence, the characters begin to ask themselves, is the man behind the letters taking credit from other attacks and abduction? Is this the kind of man to take his logo and iconic name from a watch advertisement? Every episode we've used a film title to encapsulate our theme, This episode provides the starkest contrast between the thematic perfection of David Fincher's other iconic addition to the serial killer subgenre, and it feels apt and convenient in an inverse kind of way that for episode 11, our theme is set. Here's screenwriter James Vanderbilt talking about the influences of David Fincher and Andrew Kevin Walker 7 on both the time the film was released and the time that they were making Zodiac. Listen, I, I with the Saw movies, and, and, and God bless those guys, but I saw the, those movies and I was like, oh, this is Seven. We're doing Seven. Like, the lighting <laughs> is Seven. The, you know what I mean? Like, all of it is, you know, down to everybody wears a tie, but nobody wears a jacket. Like, they're all like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's so which is great and wonderful and stylistic. And when we were making Zodiac, I do remember being very aware of the fact that people were probably going to be pissed that it wasn't seven part two. Because, you know, I knew the ads were gonna be Zodiac from the director of seven, I knew. And instead of seven, which is, I love, and I think it's a great movie. Um, they're gonna get this two hour, 45 minute meditation on on <laughs> obsession and and going down rabbit holes. And, and at the end of it, we kind of solve the mystery, but we don't. 
You know what I mean? So there was absolutely, like, we were very aware that we were making a very different movie yes. than Seven. I don't think we ever were worried about that because the, the sort of the object is what the object is. But we definitely went, there are going to be some some people who are, are pissed off if this movie isn't positioned right in its advertising and isn't sort of honest about what it is. So definitely. And, and you know, David was also very cognizant of, you know, because, I mean, I mean, he made Seven and then he got offered every serial killer movie under the sun. I mean, and they made a lot of them, by the way, too, because Seven was so successful. Eight millimeters, Andy Kevin Walker script, same yeah, writer. Yeah. Um, they made, um, was Jennifer Eight after that? I think they yeah. made, there's a Taking Lives, was the Ethan yeah. Hawke one. Ethan Hawke um, Angelina Jolie, yeah. Angelina Jolie. And I feel like there's another one with Angelina Jolie. Too. Like, I, they just made a ton of those. And I am sure he got offered all, the same way I was lucky enough to get offered a lot of true crime movies after Zodiac. It's just, that's what they do, right? So when we sent Fincher this, I was like, there's no fucking way he's going to do it. He's just like, going to bat it away. He's going to bat it yeah, away because absolutely. it's going to be just there's like no one reason. of those other things. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, though, there's no reason not to offer it to him, too, because he's a brilliant director and it'd be incredible to have him. So when he said he was interested, it completely floored me because I figured we'd be disqualified just on the basis of he's directed seven. He doesn't want to repeat himself. And obviously this isn't repeating himself, but just... He, you know, if you've made three or four movies, four movies he'd made at that point, you don't want to be the serial killer guy. Yes. Like you don't want to just be the one guy, you know? So you know, he made the space movie, which he hated, you know? He made Seven, which is great. He made a Michael Douglas thriller, which is super smart. Fight Club, which is like nothing else. Yes. Um, and then, you know, the largest contained thriller known to man, which is <laughs> only David Fincher will go, I'm gonna make a movie that all takes place in one house, but the house has to be four stories tall and we're gonna send the camera through keyholes. Like, <laughs> so, you know, I was just assumed that this would be, you know, not not on his docket, but um, as sort of well-documented, he grew up in the Bay Area and that's what it was interesting to him about it. But yeah, when the when the, we were definitely aware of the fact that there was going to be the anticipation of a movie like Seven, which which is built to give you shocks at a regular basis, right? Yes. You know there are seven sins, you know there. So it's like it's it's you know it's built like one of those movies, like it's a horror movie. You're gonna get a kill every ten minutes. You're gonna get a. And we were very specific and excited about the idea of this movie the first 30 or 40 minutes will do that and then we are going to stop doing that um, and and uh, you know withholding from an audience is, is not something david hates <laughs> <laughs> and now on to the same As horns and harmonicas howl to welcome the Sly and the Family Stone needle drop, I want to take you higher. A montage of the four key members of the Zodiac case use this to baton past the narration of a flurry of Zodiac correspondence. This is a Zodiac speaking. By the way, have you cracked the last cipher I sent you? I'm mildly curious as to how much money you have on my head now. I hope you do not think I was the one who wiped out that blue meanie with a bomb at the cop station. Even though I talked about killing children with one. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'd like to see some nice Zodiac buttons wandering around town. Everyone else has these buttons like Peace, Black Power, Melvin Eats Blubber, etc. Well, it would cheer me up considerably if I saw a lot of people wearing my button. Please, no nasty this ones. This is the Zodiac me. speaking. I shot a man sitting in a parked car with a 38 Zodiac 12 SFPD 0. 
The map coupled with this code will tell you where the bomb is set. You have until next fall to dig it up. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm rather unhappy because you people will not wear some nice Zodiac buttons. So I now have a little list starting with the woman. In the scene with the first letter, we saw the meticulous controlled process steps of the reception, engagement with police, editorial bargaining, and eventual publication. In this scene, it's multimedia breakneck collage. With each passing communication, Tosky and Armstrong are forced to push through the spectral noise of communications. The words of the Zodiac and the media reporting are barriers that must constantly wade through. All the while, the idea of the Zodiac slips further away. Casey Storm's costume design, Donald Graham Burt's production design, and the art and set direction by Keith Cunningham and Victor Zolfer, respectively, never skip a beat. The time, the research, the specificity of the detail in each fleeting scene still bursts with every snappy edit. But time is passing. No less than four Chirons pass. One, 30 days later, San Francisco, California. Two, eight days later, San Francisco, California. Three, two months later, San Francisco, California. Four, four weeks later, San Francisco, California. This is the Zodiac speaking. I'm rather unhappy because you people will not wear some nice Zodiac buttons. So I now have a little list, starting with the woman and her baby that I gave a rather interesting ride for a couple of hours one evening a few months back that ended in my burning her car where I found them. We're really not going to run any more of his letters? The new policy, our brothers in blue want us to hold back and see how he reacts. Four letters in three months, and this is the first mention of Kathleen Johns? That's very weird. That's because he's full of shit. What do you mean? You don't know? Here's Adam Naiman talking about how sociopathically effective David Fincher is as a filmmaker and Zodiac's relationship to Seven. It makes them slippery and amorphous and it clarifies that what it's a movie about is it's a movie about living in the aftermath of something unthinkable. Yes. And trying to figure out how and why and who and what and all the W's, you know, you know journalistically. <laughs> But it's also an amazing combination of assault and restraint, Mm. right? A movie that maintained that level of predatory terror, because that's where Fincher, for better and for worse, is such a skilled filmmaker. He can make you feel horrible, visceral things. You know, that's kind of been it since Seven. It's like if he wants you to feel... I mean, some people reject it and some people are less susceptible to it and some people might hate it because they see it as like the acme of exploitation. That's a whole other conversation. I mean, there is something about him as a filmmaker that can seem a little prurient or a little pushy, but like if he wants you to be scared or if he wants you to feel a knife going into someone's body, you know, he can do it. I think it's almost sociopathically easy for him. I mean, he's very good at it. So a movie that sustained that for two and a half hours, I think would be unbearable. Mm. Uh, a movie that moves away from it is demonstrating, I think, a critique of how that kind of violence works in a movie. Yes. Enough is enough. A little goes a long way. Yeah. The first cut is the deepest, you know, whatever <laughs> cliche you want to use. But it creates a context for how interested and excited and terrified and haunted and obsessed people are by what happened. If you left the violence off screen entirely, you'd have to take people's word for it. Mm. If you put it on screen too much, I think you would confuse what the movie is about. Yeah, you would, you, it and, would just be inflating a myth. You'd, you'd yeah. just be, you'd be propagandizing Zodiac in many ways if you did that. 
Because one of his big talking points with Seven, or a big talking point of Seven was, well, your mind is doing all the work. You know, you're only seeing the aftermath. I mean, that film is all about staging and aftermath. It's like putting these bodies in these grotesque states of display. But I mean, I remember seeing that film in Toronto and it was rated in Canada, it's called 14A, which was not R, yeah. right? Because the violence was actually fairly limited. It's gore more than violence. I mean, in Seven, you don't see a knife going into a body. In Zodiac, he shows you a knife going into a body in a very undramatic way. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a reverse relationship to violence. Where in Seven, the violence is so ostentatious and hearty. It's almost abstract expressionism, but it's also all aftermath. And Zodiac is clumsy, ugly, first-person kind of violence. I'm, remind, I'm reminded of a line from Seven, which to me, Zodiac is a film that answers, interrogates, critiques, repudiates Seven. <laughs> yes. Seven, is a, Seven is a perfect movie that I think on some level is kind of bad. Yeah, and and Zodiac, I think, is a not quite perfect movie that is an actual masterpiece that I would <laughs> put in the high rank of movies of its kind. There's a line in Seven when Pitt and Freeman are shaving their chests, and he says, "If John Doe's head opens up and a UFO flies out, I, I want you to have expected it." And in the comic booky, cartoony world of Seven, it's a great line because I mean, John Doe really is a, an alien. I mean, no one could do the things that he does. No. But in Zodiac. When Arthur Lee Allen shows up, I actually you find yourself going, is this person capable of the things that the movie has shown us? Because yes. someone was. Yeah. I mean, the guy at the lake is not uh, not a Nietzschean Ubermensch, a fat asshole with a knife. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, there's somewhere there is some point between the mythic over inflated persona of the Zodiac, which he put in everybody's brain through codes and messaging and through this incredible public performance and just yeah. like probably a shitty guy in a trailer. And but I, and the shitty guy in a trailer with a 51-year-old enduring cipher that takes three guys who are locked up for six months in quarantine with supercomputers 51 yeah. years later to unlock. It's like, what the f- yeah. I know, and, and I know. And, and so you're like, you're caught between these two things, the like, this is just like a shitty sociopathic person and you don't want to mythologize violence like this. But this is also someone whose semiotic brain, conscious or not, was so incredible that he created this trail for himself where he becomes emblematic of something in the 20th century, like not emblematic of the 20th century, but he becomes emblematic of something. He is the point zero for the true crime procedural yeah. thriller popularization that Graysmith book is not the first true crime book, but it's only but a decade after In Cold Blood and it's much more forensic and procedural than In Cold Blood. And people like Ed Gein, and by the way, anyone listening, I'm not a serial killer person. I've just been writing about Zodiac. I don't study this <laughs> stuff or care about it, but the movie makes me interested in it. You know, he, he's, he's post-Ed Gein and stuff and around the same time as Charles Manson, but the way that serial killer chic starts to permeate TV, film, <laughs> literature, culture. He's right at the center of that. That's why among the many great scenes in Zodiac, and I'm not using great the way we sometimes use great to say, oh yeah, that was great. I mean like a legitimately great moment is when the writing is on the wall. Mm. And the Zodiac letters are throughout San Francisco. I know the first time you watch the movie, you're like, well, that's a bit of a 
weird effect. I mean, this movie is so realistic. Why are we doing this cartoony Adobe Photoshop superimposition? <laughs> but Fincher loves doing that. I mean, he has that same effect in Fight Club with yeah. Edward Norton in his uh, IKEA catalog. The, one of the one of the one of the great glimpses of just like little flourishes yeah. an IKEA catalog coming to life. It's beautiful. IKEA catalog coming to life, and in Zodiac, it's it's a different thing. It's not uh, it's not a commodity. It's ideology. Yeah. It's a city. It's almost like, I mean, it's not almost like, it's like Fritz Lang. It's like, uh, it's like Dr. Mabuse or, or, oh. or M. It's, it's text, text infiltrating a city and a city is being rewritten in this, this psychopath's image. When they go into the Chronicle offices and all the diary entries are everywhere, it's an amazing image. Yeah. You know, that's a photographic mind at work and that's beyond drama i mean that's not character drama that's visual drama yes and it's incredible storytelling to me even when you say it out loud or watch it the first time you're like that's a little cheesy but it's not <laughs> cheesy it's ingenious you don't know welcome please put your stuff down you're going down five rows and left looking for the modesto b from march i'm going to stand here and attempt not to vomit Left. Mm -hmm. What am I looking for? Kathleen Johnson. Also, probably want to pull the crowd from, you know, never mind. I'll see that. Okay, it's a death by a thousand paper cuts. <laughs> yes. And it's, uh, and Nathan Lee in the Village Voice said it was like being locked in a filing cabinet. And then he clarified, he said, that's a compliment. Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't know if there's a filmmaker as interested in libraries as Fincher. I mean, in Seven, uh. the library is a, a paradise. Mm. In Gone Girl, there's a scene where they fuck each other in a library. Dragon Tattoo is an archive movie. You know, Zodiac yeah. is an archive movie. And yet, what's interesting is that the information that his characters achieve, like it drives the plot of the movie and it's always necessary. But I mean, in Seven, all it does is yield more information also, gathering. Pull the crowd from, you know, never mind. I'll see that. Okay, look at this letter again, the part about Kathleen Jones. Tell me what facts he gives. A uh, woman and her baby abducted. Mm -hmm. Fact. Uh, uh, the car on fire. Okay, now. Look at the article from the B. Um, see it yet? Everything in the letter already appeared in the article. And he's done it before. Officer Richard Radatich shot sitting in his car. So he had claimed that he shot someone in their car. Mm -hmm. A couple days after this article came out, the police already had somebody in custody. Zodiac didn't do it, but took credit for it anyway, because he's in it for the press. He even stole his symbol. What? Yeah, shit. Uh, if I show you something, you promise not to tell anyone? Who would I tell? Okay, totally saw the point. That's the only place that word and that symbol ever appeared together before the letters. The guy stole his logo off a watch. I've been somebody who's killed 13 people. He claims he's killed 13 people, but which ones can we actually confirm? There's three in Vallejo, one in Berryessa, the cabbie, that's it. Bobby, you almost look disappointed. Chief's pulling everybody out buses. Here's writer and author Bill Ryan on the impact of that disappointment. The scene where Graysmith and Avery, um, Gyllenhaal and Downey Jr. Uh, go to the uh, files in the um, at the Chronicle. Yes. 
because he wants because uh, Avery wants to show him something, and it's the picture of the, the ad for the watch, the Zodiac watch. The film has built at this point has built this sense of dread and horror about this creature, this human creature who's out there doing these horrible things. And we'll talk about the Lake Berryessa scene. We'll yeah. double back because, but that that scene has has set the tone. Um, more than anything prior about the the nightmare of this man and this these murders and you and going into it um, I think most people who have seen the movie do know going in probably that it's an unsolved murder or unsolved case so this air of of mystery and this this huge ominousness about what's going on and, and who could be doing this and these code these you know these uh, cryptograms and things that he's sending to the paper and when they're decoded they're so terrifyingly weird and and so anyway so they're but they're so they're back there in the in the files and um he, Avery shows him the watch ad it's like that's where he got it this mundane little because Avery had thought it was a gun sight but it's a it's a, a design for from an ad man somewhere so there's that but then the thing that really got to me and still gets to me because i saw a lot of myself in gray smith in this moment yes avery says to him how many killings can we even pin on this guy um there's the there's the one that you know he runs through the ones that they can confirm or the zodiac he says that's five and there were other murders that people thought might have been him but probably weren't. And the look on Graysmith's face, and Avery says, "Bobby, you almost look disappointed." And <laughs> that really, that line kills me. There is something uniquely devastating about this line, and about the hurt in Graysmith's face. The manifestation of the words of Zodiac into existence in the previous montage, the captivating symbols, and the mysticism emblematic of the 20th century experience could not simply be accidental, or could it? Graysmith loves puzzles. This elaborate orchestration with complex cryptograms, murder, and manipulation of systems of authority could not simply be the work of a person inspired by an advertisement. Could someone, like a Don Draper, access the subprimal human impulse for control and power in the allure of an ad? Here's Daniel Lamon, a writer, podcaster, and theatre director, on the endless and essential infuriation of Zodiac. Watching Zodiac is like watching someone do a puzzle, but every time that they, they think, you think you've put all the right pieces together, a piece will turn up that just doesn't make any sense. And that's the kind of fundamental unsettling horror of the Zodiac murders is that they're not crimes of passion because they're too organized to be that. They're not, like, he doesn't turn up to Lake Berryessa as if, as if he is a convict who's just escaped from a prison in Colorado. He turns up with the, with the full get-up, with his fucking logo on his chest, with the, with, the, with the rope perfectly cut out. He's prepared this. And then, but the problem with, like, that would then suggest that it should be easy to put all the pieces together and work out why he's doing it, where he's getting, like, what, what is his motive? What is, what is his modus operandi? But then the pieces of the actual premeditated murders themselves do not make any sense yeah. there's nothing to suggest why he should go from one to to the other why was he dressed in one in one way in one and not dressed in another and so the whole time you're watching the film you're you're trying to put these pieces together and they're just not coming together 
And then Fincher pulls these, pulls three really tremendous tricks on you as an audience. That he gives you three moments where you think you're damn close to getting something. You know, the call to Melvin Belli on the morning show, the abduction of the woman with the baby, and the basement scene. Where everything else up to that point, every, every moment you come across anything to do with the Zodiac, there's an incongruity that doesn't make any sense. And in those three moments, he lays out things where it makes complete sense in a cinematic way because it's one of the one of the weird the one of the kind of weird questions i had with this film watching it for so, so many times was i know that his rule was only show the murders that people were witness to so why does he then show murders that people were not that weren't the zodiac murders like that clearly weren't like the like the, the abduction of the woman why show the the guy calling into the radio show and I think it's to do with the fact of giving you as an audience something to hold on to where you think, oh, we're getting close to an answer and then <laughs> pulling that away from you and going like, of course, the guy with the, in the basement, obviously that's got to be linked. And at the end it's like, but it's not linked at all. And no. that's dis- that is an extra level of disorienting because then you're like, then what the fuck did I just watch? <laughs> and then as he goes, you get to Arthur Lee Allen mm. and all these pieces start to fit into place. And you start to feel a sense of adrenaline and comfort as an audience of going, I know where this is going. And then you're thrown out because the handwriting doesn't link and all that stuff. You have to go to the whole Robert going to the basement thing. And then just as you think that the film is starting to fall, you know, to, to fall into disarray, you get all the last few pieces of Arthur Lee Allen. It's his birthday, which, by the way, is the day before my birthday. <laughs> so I was pretty excited when I watched the film. And I was like, I almost had the same birthday as the Zodiac. Well, and, and, um, and which is why I released the first episode on Arthur Lee Allen's birthday. It was a great birthday. Thank you so much. <laughs> I was so excited to listen to it. But, and so you get that thing of like all these pieces are falling into place. And you're starting to go, oh, I get who this man is. I get the motivations. I understand because really what we want as, you know, as a, you know, in our obsession with these figures is to understand why. If we understand why, it'll give us a sense of comfort of going, oh, but we're not like them. Like that was the thing that, you know, looking into Manson was like the comfort that everyone had of turning into the devil, into Satan was, oh, but he's not like us because he's the devil. Like that's, that's not a human thing. That's an inhuman thing. And so what you want with this film is as you get getting towards the end is you want an explanation as to who this person is so you can understand it and go, great, it's not me, it's understandable, he's a human, he's a, a full figure and it's fine, I can look into the face of evil and it's all good. <laughs> and as you get to the end of the film, Mike sits there and he says, that's the face of the man that shot me on July 4th, 1969. You're like, great, perfect, I've got everything I need. And then Fincher pulls out one last puzzle piece, puts it down and it doesn't fucking fit. Bobby, you almost look disappointed. Chief's pulling everybody off buses. Business as usual. Something will shake loose. Not a peep in four months. First he won't shut up, and now... Maybe uh, we drove him underground. Maybe he's gone. 311 at 582 Hay, cross the Fillmore. There's a mail... Happy birthday, Bill. Thanks. We transition from Morty's to the Chronicle Archives. We stand still and attempt not to vomit with Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery before illuminating the essential fallibility and human perversion simmering beneath this possessed evil. There's such a dynamism in the scene despite the essential exposition dump summarising 90-odd days of the Zodiac case. 
There's coverage of both actors, one-shots of each actor's face, and a variety of inserts with punctuative points and gestures on clippings and papers alike that provide a subliminal tempo to the scene. The echo of the concrete bunker and the hum of the fluorescent lights and generators, one assumes, create glorious atmosphere. After we register to the blow of this bombshell from Avery, we traverse back to Toski and Armstrong sitting in their car deliberating about the slowing correspondence. The next Chiron, October 11, 1970, San Francisco, California, the corner of Washington and Cherry. This is the year anniversary of the murder of cab driver Rick Stone. Does it ever bother you that people call you shorty? Does it bother you that people call you retard? Nobody calls me that. to make sure that Darlene Barron's killer is brought to justice. I believe some clues were overlooked in the murder of Darlene Barron. I believe... Who is that? Lawrence Douglas, mayor of Vallejo. She's running for governor. The police department either did not have the money, the time, or yes, the inclination. Sayonara police endorsement. Good workflow. Does anyone ever call me names? You mean like return? Yeah. Here's Meg Shields. I'm feeling cheated that we don't get more of this Robert Downey Jr. Well, it makes you sad, doesn't it? Because I feel like we've been robbed of uh, specifically Robert Downey Jr. It's like, yes, I feel like we he got taken away from us. <laughs> like, like I, I actually think he does like good work in the Marvel films for what they are and for what he's being asked to do. And which, it, it, again, it's him doing what he does best, which is playing a version of himself and he's yeah. just one of those actors where he's that's what he does and, does and, and you know what i don't I, I don't want anyone to ever think that i begrudge that i think it's like if that's what you no, do no no i don't i don't say it's like owen, criticism it's like owen wilson if you sure. do if you do that like do that better than anyone like no one can be owen wilson he's that yeah. good yeah but anyway watching zodiac i'm just like we there are un unmade robert downey jr films that we did not get because he got assigned to a 50 picture deal with Disney or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean, every, everyone's cast perfectly. Like this is, the, I said the word unimpeachable earlier and like, this is a pretty unimpeachable film. Like this is one of those films where you can bounce a penny off it. And yes. that totally extends to casting and performances. Like there's truly nothing at fault. They're all delightful. Everyone is, is has been cast in a way where they can do what they do very well. Um, I will watch Jake Gyllenhaal be an absolute madman any day of the week. I think that is the best way to use it. You think? So I read somewhere that Bong Joon-ho like loves this movie yes. because the man has taste. It's great. Um, do you think he thought about that when he cast Jake Gyllenhaal in Oakjaw? Possibly. <laughs> where he was like, where he was like, what if this man just kept going? <laughs> like, <laughs> like that's the energy I want you to bring today. Yeah. <laughs> no. Tell me it's not a piece of bloody shit. Sure. Fuck! Oh, fucking crap! I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name, and so I'll clue you in. But then why spoil the game? Happy Halloween. Paul, you did call him a latent homosexual in at least one of your articles. Dave, I want a gun. 
a, a gun. Yet another Chiron. And two and a half weeks later in the Chronicle offices, a very of-the-period insult exchange with Shorty and hilarious denial from Avery before the appearance of another Zodiac letter. As we sit here with all the key characters sharing a scene together, something that rarely happens in the film, the contrast between Seven and Zodiac could not be clearer. The stylistic intents, the reality of Zodiac as a human being, and the fantasy of John Doe, who wouldn't surprise us if an alien flew out of his head, begins to really crystallize. The conversation in the car with Tosky and Armstrong leading to this reset of the Chronicle offices emphasizes the sheer amount of time that these men and the entire city of San Francisco has spent on this case. But it also underscores questions, questions of the Zodiac's intent, of his purpose, or a potential endgame, something that's so implicit in John Doe's abject artwork that we never think to question it. Here's Brian Koppelman and Anna Swanson on how they see the contrast between these films. Seven, the screenplay by Andrew Kevin Walker of Seven is one of the greatest spec screenplays ever. It is yeah. a stunning achievement, for sure. But because of the, the not the, I don't, it's not that the end is a gimmick, but because of the, well, really the whole movie is good Grand Guignol, so you have to end the movie in a Grand Guignol way. Yes. But because of that, you are, as you're saying, in a genre entertainment. Yeah. Whereas this movie just isn't playing in that arena at all. I, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, Zodiac is kind of almost Fincher refuting some of what happened in and to a larger extent around Seven, where I think Seven was very much that kind of like glamorous, glamorous-ish slash like very edgy take on true crime where it's like oh it's this like genius killer and he has this plan and it's all very clever and you know i love seven it's great but um i think there's a there it makes john doe into someone that's very kind of edgy and intriguing and i think that that just idea of the killer as someone who's you know i don't want to say like cool but like yeah the most interesting part of it yeah we can be here all day psychoanalyzing why people love horror movies right and like i love like i love horror movies i love slashers i love sort of you know the like spectacle of of gore and and the indulgence of that like i think that has a place absolutely and i don't think that those films are lesser because they indulge that but i think that that's not what this is no and i think that you know, it's not necessarily that one is better than the other. I just think it's that each has a place and a film like Zodiac, I think committing to what it does and then betraying that by trying to be what it's not would just, it would fall apart. Here's Josh Rothkopf comparing the endings of Seven that we see and the ending that maybe a Zodiac directing Fincher could or would do either. But you know, it's also funny. It's like, when I saw Zodiac, I found myself thinking that he finally got to make the ending that I think he might have wanted to make in Seven. Seven has this amazing ending, right? I don't need to feel like I'm spoiling anything for anyone. But there there was a coda that I don't think was ever filmed, or I think they were discussing it, where the final sin was going to be turned against the sinner who was Brad Pitt's character, and that he was going to go to jail. Um, 
because the, the sin of wrath had to be punished. It was the final sin. And the, and the whole system, uh, Morgan Friedman says something like, you know, we'll do what, whatever we can for him. And he's carted away in the back of the cop car. But he would, he would have gone to jail. He would have gone to jail yeah. and the sin of wrath would itself have been punished. But it was considered, I think, too bleak. Too bleak even for that script. It was too bleak to for the film to end with Brad Pitt in jail. But that's but I think Fincher was sort of like, one day I'm gonna be able to make that movie. And that was Zodiac. This idea that regardless of how much evidence you amass and how many factoids you create and you see the guy in the hardware store and he turns away from you because he knows he's been had, you're ultimately the one that's that's gonna be you're, you, you the, the detective, is the one that's that's ultimately going to lose because you're trapped. You've got this albatross around your neck. You're always going to be obsessed with this case. There is never going to be closure for you. And, and it's never as tidy as that. I feel like he's actually making the bleakest ending of any Hollywood movie during that, during that decade. I feel it in my bones. You ache to know my name. And so I'll clue you in. But then why spoil the game? Happy Halloween. Paul, you did call him a latent homosexual in at least one of your articles. Dave, I want a gun. Seven, a thematically perfect movie, is set in an abstract every city with a sinister and seamless endgame by design. This elevates it from any kind of reality to something mythical. Here's Matt Zoller-Zeitz and then Brendan Hodges on the ways in which Zodiac is affected by the psychic energy of the time that it was made. What a, what a monumental feast of a movie this is. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what I was getting into when I went to see it. I mean, obviously I knew about the Zodiac killer, um, but I didn't know, uh, I hadn't read the book and I didn't know what kind of treatment it was going to be. And then I saw the running time was like two hours and 40 minutes or something like that. Yes. And, uh, uh, and I thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, but it really needs that time. I think it really needs that time. And I believe it's, if it's not Fincher's longest film, it's one of them. Yes. I think maybe Benjamin Button might be longer. I love Benjamin Button, and I, I you know, it's and it's interesting too because um, Aaron Aradias and I have had this discussion many times. But Aaron feels like Zodiac and Benjamin Button are Fincher's political films. They're his two films about the post 9/11 era. That Zodiac is actually, and I got to give credit to Aaron because you know, this is just totally something he would say. The Zodiac. It's, it's about what it's about, but it's also about something else in the way that Steven Spielberg's post 9-11 films are about what they're about and they're also about something else. Like, yes. you know, the Terminal, if you look at the Terminal War of the Worlds, the 2005 version and Munich together, and then mm. they came out within the span of 18 months, which is mind boggling. They, they really do feel like a complete statement about different aspects of 9-11. And uh, the terminal is about that immediate aftermath, that feeling of, oh, we're all in this together, but we're also kind of stranded. Uh, and that was in production, I believe. Um, I think that he had been flirting with making that before 9-11, but that's neither here nor there. Um, but War of the Worlds is, is I, I always say that that's his version of The Birds or, or Godard's Weekend. Yes. Uh, where it's it's a it's a metaphor movie. It's 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 a dream movie. It's a nightmare movie. It's not meant to be literally. 
and just as in a dream how you know a character in a dream who represents your father could also represent al pacino and could also represent you know obama or something <laughs> yes. um, war of the worlds you know war of the worlds is uh, a lot of things are happening simultaneously at the at the level of metaphor and symbol and and the simplest way to explain that for me is that war of the worlds is a movie that starts out with the 9-11 attacks essentially sleeper cells awaken and do tremendous damage to to people to cities on the on the east coast and this one representative american family goes fleeing and you know the first thing the little girl says when the bridge blows up behind them is is it the terrorists yes and then by the time we get to the end of the film you know the martians which had stood in for al-qaeda or or just the terrorist threat generally they kind of represent us by the end of it. And now we're in Iraq, we're in Afghanistan, and it's a story of occupation. It's about living under occupation and being completely out, outgunned, out-armored by these enormous mechanical monstrosities. And it's, you know, so Tom Cruise's character goes from being essentially somebody in New York City on, on September 11th to being uh, an, an, Af, an Afghani or Iraqi father trying to protect his family from the American tanks. You know, that's that's like one of many ways that you can take that story. Absolutely. And it morphs so gracefully from one thing into another that, you know, it's an exercise in empathy. That famous Roger Ebert line about you know, movies being a machine that generates empathy. If you're really paying attention to what that movie is doing at the level of symbols, you can see how, just like Munich, which immediately followed it, it's it's sort of a a means of getting us to consider things from more than one perspective or more than one experience. And, you know, what does Steven Spielberg have to do with David Fincher? Well, you know, like I'm like James Burke on Connections. <laughs> You're wondering what we're doing here in the jungle. You know. <laughs> James Burke is one of my favorite television people ever, ever. Like nobody, nobody could set up an edit like James Burke. I mean, you know, the audience, I bet you most of the audience listening to this has never heard of James Burke, but the host of Connections, one of the greatest series in the history of television, but he would say something like, you know, um, how did the development of a particular type of rudder end with the Apollo 11 mission? That's fine <laughs> out. And then he would take you in this like chain of associations where one thing leads to this other thing, leads to this other thing, leads to this other thing, and then it ends with, you know, landing men on the moon or something like that. And the curious case of Benjamin Button and Zodiac, according to Aaron Aradias, are Fincher's equivalent of what Spielberg did with 9-11. Like they're they're his post 9/11 movies, but they are not explicitly about that. Like he doesn't drop Matt Damon into the middle of the green zone, but he sort of manages to have his say. And yes. remember, now Bin Laden was still alive, as far as we knew at the time that Zodiac was released. And yes. and Aaron's theory, which I think is an excellent one, is that Zodiac is about getting used to the idea of an evil killing force being out there that you can't do anything about. That yes. seems it seems just immune to punishment or capture. And uh, and living with the unknown, living with the unknown, whether it's, you know, the whereabouts of a killer or the or simply on a more basic level, the possibility that death could strike you at any moment and you probably don't have any say in it. Yes. You know, that that's that's what Zodiac is about on a, on a very deep, very simple level. And uh, Benjamin Button is is his Katrina movie. That's his Hurricane Katrina movie. It's set in New Orleans. It's about a, it's it's an antediluvian uh, movie in every sense of the word. Yes. Uh, and it's about the, the the ephemeral nature of of locations, lives, experiences, and everything else. And you know the and the idea of you know a clock that runs backwards, a man who ages backwards, 
you know, there's a lot to unpack there. But, you know, the idea is that, among other things, these are his nine libraries. And yeah. seeing Zodiac uh, in 2007, six years after the 9-11 attacks, really was a powerful experience, yeah. particularly seeing it in New York City for me. Yeah. Um, and even though it's a, one of the great, you know, California films ever made, uh, it's... Um, it had, I felt like it had a sort of a utility or an application to what was happening at that moment. You know, we were in Iraq. We'd been in Iraq for four years by that point. We'd been in Afghanistan for six. The war on terror had been going on for six years. We were in the middle of George W. Bush's second term. And, you know, the images of like the time-lapsed images of the Transamerica Pyramid being built and watching the characters, you know, uh, getting older and, and, you know, their lives changing and still they haven't caught this guy. Uh, just it all rang terribly familiar to me. Yes. Um, so you know that's that's my general take on what this film is doing. But I love comparing Zodiac to Munich because they're both movies again about a historical event that itself speaks to a kind of culture shift and has all these philosophical and psychological you know ramifications now. Munich is very possibly mostly a work of fiction. And obviously Zodiac is a dramatized true story. And obviously there's embellishments in Zodiac, but you know, it, it a lot of it is not too, too far from what went down. Watching the special features of Zodiac, you really see how much they valued and cared about all of that stuff and making sure it was all done very respectfully but going back to munich and off that same point these are movies about an ensemble of people who their experiences trying to do a job that they wish they didn't really have to do leads to one of two possibilities either it becomes a wound that doesn't heal or it becomes an obsession. And every character in both of these winds up in one of those two categories. And in Gradesmith's case, you know, it becomes this overwhelming obsession where he's trying to negotiate the terms of his own catharsis. Yeah. Where he's like, I'm never gonna find the truth. I'm never gonna find you know, the full answer. He could have his beliefs, but he knows in his heart he's never going to find evidence that confirms any of this. So he finds a line in the sand for him to cross that he thinks will bring him some level of satisfaction in his life. And I wonder if it wound up doing that for him, if that wound up being enough. But at that same time, I talked earlier about how is the ending of Zodiac some kind of resolution? Like, to what extent should we walk away from the movie going, ah, well, at least they know who it is. We're in Herb Kane. Paul Avery's investigation has one of the accolade of a message from the Zodiac warning, you are doomed. As a result, several Cron newsmen are wearing lapel buttons reading, I am not Paul Avery. You should sell these. You could do well. It's been a windfall since they published a thread on my life. I've got leads coming out of the woodwork. This one guy down in 
Riverside. I'm going to drive down to see him tonight. You want to tag along? Uh, no, I have a, a date. Really? Who is this guy? He wishes to remain anonymous. I wish to remain infamous. So we're going to get along. And the final word for this episode of Zodiac Chronicle Cancer Part 1, I'll lead to Matt Zolazat. I find it fascinating that there are movies that were not not a direct response to certain historical traumas, but they were made and released kind of on the cusp of that, and they feel like they were a response to it. Like yes. the first, like the Fellowship of the Ring. Oh my God! You know, coming <laughs> out in, in fall of two thousand one, uh, it feels like what could there possibly be a more perfect blockbuster than that for for the you know to come out a couple of months after after the attacks of nine eleven. You know, it's 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 uncanny, and yet obviously that was in production for years and years. But nice. you have to wonder if there isn't a kind of a, a, a from Calgary to Hitler sort of thing happening, where you know I yes. do believe that movies, television, music, and other forms of culture, um, I think they I do believe they are the dream life of nations, and I think just as d- dreams can be an attempt to make sense of something that has happened to us, I also believe you know, having a somewhat supernatural or uncanny bent, uh, that they can be premonitions, you know? Yes. I mean, like history and literature filled with examples of premonitions, uh, premonitory dreams um, that, you know, explicitly or obliquely predict certain things that were going to happen. And I think movies sometimes do that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I mean, like, I, I'll never forget, as long as I live, the, the going to... Uh, the television press tour in the summer of 2001 and the big HBO production that was on deck was Band of Brothers. And I interviewed a young uh, guy who worked for Captain Dale Dye. I did a profile of Dale Dye, who was the technical advisor on that and God knows how many other war films and shows. And this was a young guy. He had never, he had been in the, I believe he'd been in the army, but he'd never been in combat, but he was loyal to Dale Dye. He was like, he might as well have been one of Colonel Kurtz's guys in the compound. <laughs> that was the level of fanaticism he had for Dale Dye. And uh, I, I, the last line of the piece, I don't know if it's online or not, but it was something like, if the United States were ever attacked again by an enemy, would we be up? would we rise to meet the challenge like our grandparents did in 1941 it was something along those lines and i remember thinking like what a grandiose kind of thing to say what a what a you know what a thing that has no real application to anything that's going on in the country right now and then you know that was august of 2001 and then september now check this out september 11th the attacks happened and september 9th that was a Tuesday when the attacks happened. September 9th was the premiere of Band of Brothers. You can't make this up. It's, you know, so something's going on. I mean, and I do think that there are things like, you know, like a metal detector finding finding precious coins on a beach or something. Like, I do think that sometimes these storytellers find a thing that has not been unearthed yet it hasn't come up yet and and they somehow know where it is and the timing is just eerie like it happens time and time again and i think you know I, zodiac is that that concludes episode 11 of zodiac chronicle cancer part one be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes if you can't get enough Unplugged Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively fortnightly on the One Heat Minute Productions Patreon. The link to our Patreon is in our show notes. 
This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. The Duff, thank you, my friend. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicle stickers and pins were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or email amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. They are also available to purchase, and a link to that is in our show notes. But until next time. Good. Bye.